Welcome to our next episode in our Work Healthy podcast series. I'm John Ryan and thanks for joining me. From the moment I started Dr. Anna Lemke's latest book, Dopamine Nation, I was hooked, or you could say addicted. I couldn't actually put it down because it explained so many of the challenges that I saw around me and indeed that I personally had experienced in a world that was becoming more anxious and depressed with so many people struggling with mental health issues in the face of abundance and during a time where we have almost everything we want at our fingertips. But do we actually know what's good for us? Is pain or pleasure the answer to anxiety? Well, in this podcast, Anna shares her views on the drugification of nearly every human experience. She explains why addiction is a disease and we're all vulnerable and why she believes it's our modern day plague. Anna discusses how too much of a good thing can lead to anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria and cravings. And we also discuss addictions in the workplace and whether working from at home facilitates easier access for the addicted and how employers can help. Finally, we discuss the importance of pro-social shame, radical honesty, self-binding techniques and dopamine fasting as ways to recover from addiction. I started by asking Anna the big picture question first as to whether people actually have the skills and ability necessary to successfully live in the world of today. Yeah, great question. I mean, I guess I would start by saying that I think we're living in a time that is extremely complicated and difficult and painful for all kinds of unobvious reasons. Um, and, you know, I call this the plenty paradox. We have, you know, all of our basic survival needs met and then some, right? And we, we've, yeah. as I say, we've drugified almost every human substance and behavior. Um, we have more leisure time. We have more disposable income. Even the poorest of the poor has more access to luxury goods that, and than at any point in human history. Um, and, of course, the, the idea or the ideal is that we would all be sitting around having deep philosophical discussions and helping each other and saving the planet. And instead what we're doing is we're drinking, we're smoking, we're playing video games and we're shopping online. Um, and we're doing that, you know, not because we're bad people, we're doing that because our ancient wiring uh, has us reflexively approaching pleasure and avoiding pain. That's how we've survived uh, through millions of years of evolution. So I have a lot of compassion for us but I do think it's it's really important to acknowledge that we're living in a very strange and difficult time, and we are not equipped for this time, right? So, so again, it's this is I I love the concept of the Anthropocene, this idea that we're living in a time of human intervention, the first time in human history when our behavior has changed our environment so fundamentally. Uh, and, and the, the great example of this is global warming, but the other example of this is the dopamine overloaded world that we live in now. The, the excess, the the pleasure, uh, the the uh, you know the, the drugification of of human experience. So I don't think we're we have the, uh, I don't think we have the mental or for that matter cultural equipment to uh, to navigate this world. Okay, and hopefully in some way your book has equip people with some at least uh, understanding of what's going on in our brains and our bodies yeah. and uh, in a way that will help us to to deal a little bit better with it. And I'm, ju I'm just wondering, I mean, like for me, uh, it all starts with education and I, I'd, I'd love to see this book on like the school curriculum. I mean, is that something that 
you think has anybody approached you and sort of said we, we should be teaching this to children in school at an early age? I love it. So I've gotten a lot of people who have approached me, um, including teachers and school districts who have included some of the chapters. But as you know, the opening chapter uh, is called Our Masturbation Machines, sure. yeah. um, you know, and and really likens, uh, you know, a, an actual masturbation machine that a patient of mine made to our digital devices yeah. um, and sort of calls that out the ways in which we're all titillating ourselves in one way or another. And so for that reason, um, you know, schools, uh, it's interesting. So in, in California, there are many high school libraries that have Dopamine Nation, but not younger, not younger sure. ages, which I can understand, which is why I'm, I'm working on um, um, like a workbook, a related oh, or companion workbook that I hope will be more accessible for families as well as um, younger children. And and because, I mean, obviously part of what we do is we survey people in workplaces to try and see if we can make workplaces healthy and make work healthy. But one of the things that's coming back again and again is anxiety rates uh, amongst the general population of employees. It just seems like as if it's it's going up and up and up and it's a bigger problem. Um, and obviously people are, you know, responding because they don't like pain. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm just wondering, what, what's your view? Because you're at the, you know, the cutting edge. You're at they're talking to people who are really suffering, but that might nearly make you think everybody's suffering. Mm -hmm. Is it a case that, you know, the population as a whole are, are suffering, um, unhappy, anxious? Is this is it getting worse or is it getting better? Is there any sort of data in terms of that overall? Well, you know, it's complicated because humans have suffered at all times in history. Um, and anxiety is you know, a relatively new term or concept for the kind of suffering that we're having. And there, there is this whole idea of stimulated reporting, and now it's less stigmatized to talk about, you know, our anxiety, our depression. But even so, having said all that, I yeah. actually do think that we are more anxious and suffering in this particular psychological way um, in unprecedented numbers. And if you look at large epidemiologic studies, they would bear that out even beyond what you would account for for stimulated reporting. So for example, um, global surveys of anxiety show that um, people are more anxious than they were 30 years ago, and that the levels of anxiety in the population are rising fastest in the wealthiest nations. The same thing for depression, the same thing you know, with some exceptions when it comes to suicide. Uh, global happiness surveys, which have been being done now for many decades, and they have very good ways of kind of making sure they're using the appropriate language to really capture this concept of happiness and well-being, show that people are less happy, especially in rich nations, than they were 30 years ago. They're less happy uh, than their parents and their grandparents. And their so what's going on? What, why, why, why is yeah. this happening? Right. So, the you know, the, the sort of big idea in Dopamine Nation is that uh, pain and pleasure are relative. Uh, what goes up must come down. And the way that we're constantly titillating our brain's reward pathway with these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, combined with the ways in which we are largely insulated from physical pain, has conspired to change um, our dopamine environment. Uh, such that we end up in this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state as a way to compensate for all the exogenous stimulation that we're getting. So that, you know, in fact, physiologically, we are more depressed and anxious um, as a way for our brains to try to balance out the constant 
titillation, euphoria, reinforcement that we're getting, not just from traditional drugs and alcohol, but from our, you know, highly, uh, highly, uh, let's say, enriched food supply, uh, from the ways in which even work has become drugified, uh, from the ways in which uh, now, you know, human connection has been drugified through social media. The devices that we use every day themselves are like a primitive fireplace calling us with their flickering lights and stimulating us. Um, for this reason, I think we, we are like we are physio physiologically out of balance with our own bodies and brains um, as we're reeling to compensate for this uh, world of o overabundance, which is essentially the plenty paradox that we've reached a tipping point when we have so much uh, that it's become too much. Just that piece around happiness, because, you know, I, I get worried when you ask kids nowadays what they want and they say, I want to be happy. And you're kind of because I think they're setting themselves a target that's unachievable. Yeah. Right? right. And they're looking at social media and they're seeing everybody's best life and they're kind right. of going, I deserve to be happy, too. And it's like as if you're chasing this happiness. And to me, moments of joy are fine. But, um, you know, there's lots of things in the world that would have me very angry. Um, you know, a war when people are dying and world hunger and all of those things that are wrong with the world. I think anger is actually OK. <laughs> so I don't want to be happy all the time. I'd be worried if somebody's happy because they're probably on drugs. So do you, do you think there's a piece there that... The, the world is sending out these messages to to people. And that's actually the comparative nature of people sort of comparing themselves to others has them depressed themselves. Yeah. So a lot of this is a cultural, you know, this idea that if we are unhappy or in pain, we must be mentally ill, requiring some kind of medication to restore us to a healthy place. When in fact, anybody who's been alive long enough or who reads any uh, philosophical or theological te text can tell you that people uh, struggle with unhappiness as a part of the human condition. A lot of what I do in my clinical work, uh, to some degree with patients who come in wanting help for depression and anxiety, is to some extent normalize their depression and anxiety, and just sort of say, this is what it is to be human. Uh, you know, I, actually, I read something wonderful recently. I can't remember the the, the name of the author, but it was, uh, um, he was a pastor of some sort, I believe. And he said he used to think that life was a series of happy times followed by unhappy times followed by happy times. But now he's more convinced that um, it's life is actually happy and sad in parallel. And every experience is um, on, on some level um, contains within it the intrinsic disappointment of that experience. And that is true. I mean, that is, I think, a, a much more um, universal experience of life in that. Um, and, you know. and as a therapist, would you see, because I remember being at a conference and uh, somebody quite famous was actually uh, talking about the fact that she couldn't actually enjoy moments that were wonderful, that everybody else was very happy because she was sort of saying, this is going to be tempered. It's going to go wrong. You know, I shouldn't be feeling this happy because there's going to be, the, as you talk about the other side of it, if I feel the mm. happiness, there's going to be the low coming. Like, is that somebody who's actually depressed and needs to sort of change their outlook on life? Or is that actually how most people secretly are viewing things? Ah, that very much depends on the person. And of course, I don't know the experience of the person you're, you're talking about. Mm. But sometimes this kind of, um, you know, anticipating the bad things to come can be a defense mechanism, Yeah. Um, which is maladaptive because it, it does then 
uh, deprive that individual of the experience of joy in the moment, which we do have. We do have those opportunities for joy or grace or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So this kind of, um, you know, the the contamination of joy by anticipating its end is probably not a particularly healthy and adaptive thing. But as I talk about a little bit, um, you know, we can even become addicted to our own worry, right? Mm -hmm. Or our own anxiety, which I think is really true. And I think that's another thing that's happened to us here in the modern era is uh, we sort of cling in some weird kind of way to our anxiety, uh, our uh, anticipation of of things going wrong. But but sometimes it's good to wallow in misery, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, I think, you know, it's trying to outrun the pain that mm. usually causes more pain. Um, but when we sort of stop and, and turn and, and face our suffering and, and just sort of stop trying to avoid it, that's often the place where we experience this kind of miraculous uh, respite from, from suffering. Gotcha. So listen, uh, hormones themselves, right? Uh, the, the, the chemicals that are going through our bodies and the like, if, if we didn't have those going through our bodies, would we die just because we wouldn't move? <laughs> Yeah. So, do, so dopamine, you know, is our reward neurotransmitter, but it's probably even more important for motivation than reward. There's this very famous experiment where rats were engineered to not have dopamine receptors in the key part of the brain called the reward pathway, which is our mo motivating part of the brain. And what the researchers discovered is if they put food in the rat's mouth, the rat would eat the food and seem to get pleasure from the food. But if they put the food even a body length away, the rat would starve to death. The point being that without dopamine, we are uh, not motivated to do the work to get the reward. Um, so we, we need it. Dopamine is a good thing. It is the neuro, neurotransmitter or the brain uh, chemical that's really essential uh, for noticing changes in our environment uh, and especially things that we need to approach and explore and potentially do again uh, in order to stay alive. What's the relationship between stress and dopamine? Mm. I mean, I know so, adrenaline is a, a factor there too, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, I mean, these are all, you know, intertwined in complex ways, but, but basically the, the, the biological definition of stress is any deviation from homeostasis or baseline, um, levels of, you know, whatever your brain is doing. And we're always releasing dopamine at kind of baseline tonic levels. Um, and when we ingest some intoxicant or do something that's reinforcing, uh, we, you know, increase dopamine firing uh, temporarily above baseline. And that is an occasion of stress, that in and of itself, uh, because that triggers our, uh, you know, endogenous cortisol to be released as part of the work of bringing uh, those dopamine levels back down to their baseline levels, which is, again, our homeostasis. Now, the way that the brain does it is first by overshooting that baseline level and going below an equal and opposite amount before going back down to baseline. That is just the, the nature of how our brains get back to baseline. What goes up must come down, come, comes down not just to where it started, but below that in this kind of reciprocal way before going back to baseline levels of dopamine firing. So, um, you know, deviating from homeostasis or baseline is definitionally uh, a form of stress, uh, stress being a form of work that the brain has to do to come back to um, um, other levels. Now, um, once people have become 
compulsive consumers of certain intoxicants. That is to say that their brain has now adapted to seeing uh, certain reinforcing drugs or behaviors. Um, another way of talking about that is to say that, 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 that the brain has become addicted to that substance or behavior. Um, and then, but eventually through the work of recovery, that individual then returns back to baseline levels of dopamine firing. What we know is that exposure to an extreme stressor can trigger relapse, right? Mm. So if somebody in recovery from an alcohol addiction is doing fine, then they're exposed to an extreme stressor, they will have intense cravings to go back to using alcohol, right? Which is why stress can can be um, you know, really dangerous for somebody who's trying to work on, on their addiction if it's the wrong kind of stress. Good kind of stress can be helpful. Uh, we see that in rats, for example. If you um, expose a rat to a, a lever press for a drug, it will press that lever un, until exhaustion or until death. Uh, if you then uh, take away uh, that drug, eventually that lever pressing will extinguish. That is, the rat will realize, oh, I'm not getting any more drug from this. I might as well stop pressing this lever. And then they'll go off and do other things. But then if you expose that rat to an extremely painful foot shock, which is a simulator for stress, the first thing that a rat will do is run over to the lever and start pressing it again. So again, this idea that uh, an extreme stressor can be an occasion uh, for the brain to automatically want to reach for something that has released dopamine as a way to kind of respond to perceived injury. So, so dopamine is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Uh, it, but it has potentially destructive elements if it's not um, maybe um, controlled a little bit. Is that the, I don't know if that's the right or wrong uh, way to put it. But I suppose um, in some cases, the, the world we're living in is one where people uh, don't want pain. And in a lot of cases, they don't think they should have pain. Um, so if you're coming from that kind of perspective, you want to escape uh, the pain. And I suppose that's all of these things that we talk about, the intoxicants, allow you to do that. Now, are you basically saying the answer to this is balance and just, okay, uh, as best you can, kind of don't be constantly trying to chase the hit and get the buzz uh, that'll rise your dopamine, dopamine levels, that you go for a more kind of controlled and balanced uh, approach to your life and a more disciplined one? Is that it? Um, I, I think my, uh, my, my point is a little bit different than that, which is okay. that we, in order to remain physiologically and therefore psychologically in balance, we have to recognize that our ancient wiring is mismatched for our modern ecosystem. So I don't like to say that people don't want pain and all they want is pleasure, because really that's true for all of us. So we are wired over millions of years of evolution to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain. Yeah. And that is what has kept us alive, you know, in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. And the way that Mother Nature has gotten us to do that is to make sure that every pleasure or dopamine spike is fleeting and is followed by a dopamine deficit state. The downer. Uh, Right, such yeah. that we keep, and in a, in, a, in a world of scarcity, then then that keeps us striving, right? We're the ultimate strivers. But what we have now is a world in which we do not have to do any work mm. to get these high dopamine rewards. And they are very plentiful, and they're available at the touch of a fingertip. So, of course, we are 
over-consuming, and we all are, whether your drug is alcohol or cannabis or cocaine or opioids or shopping or gambling or video games or pornography, whatever it is, we're all struggling with compulsive overconsumption because we're wired to consume as much as we possibly can when we get that thing that lights up our brain. So it makes for a very challenging environment and we're out of balance because of that, you know, it's like yeah. we have this fire hose of dopamine, our brains are trying to compensate. So we're collectively and individually downregulating our own dopamine receptors, downregulating our own dopamine production in order to balance ourselves out, which also is causing our stress response, right? Which is contributing to anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving because we are physiologically not adapted for the world that we find ourselves in. And I'm just interested some people can manage through that others become addicted so I, I don't know if there's a percentage of you know how many people in the world are actually suffering from uh, addiction but what what makes the difference i mean like are there certain people who have addictive personalities i've, I've heard the term is that is that the case that's just some people are better at managing it than others some people just go down a slippery slope of addiction it's clearly it's clear that um, some of the vulnerability for becoming addicted is inborn or genetic. So this is based on family studies where you can see if you have a biological parent or grandparent who was addicted to alcohol, you're at four times increased risk of becoming alcoholic yourself compared to the general population, even if raised outside of that alcoholic home. Um, and, you know, we just see this also clinically, like certain individuals who just have what we used to call the addictive personality. Now we just call the disease of addiction, where they're okay. just prone, prone to get addicted to almost everything. If it's not one thing, it's another. Having said that, I will say that one of the major points I'm trying to make in Dopamine Nation is that we've all become more vulnerable to the problem of addiction yeah. because drugs are so much more available including drugs that didn't exist before. And I sort of use myself as an example of this. I thought I didn't inherit the addiction gene because alcohol is not a euphorant for me or a relaxant. Caffeine is not a stimulant. It doesn't wake me up. I just sort of figured, oh, well, whatever that thing is that's going on to make drugs reinforcing, like I don't have it. But it turns out it wasn't true. I just hadn't yet encountered my drug of choice, the particular thing that releases dopamine in my reward pathway, which turned out to be the thing that has always been the source of self-soothing in my life, which is reading, which has now become drugified, and I'm talking about my particular addiction to romance novels facilitated yeah. by my Kindle. I became a chain reader. I progressed over time from kind of, you know, uh, innocent romance novels for teenagers like the Twilight series to, you know, frank erotica like Fifty Shades of Grey reading late at night, reading to exhaustion, reading to the exclusion of other things that I value and want, reading at work in between patients until I kind of realized in discussion with somebody else, a colleague slash student, like, oh, I think I, I have a problem here. And indeed, when I tried to stop, I found it very difficult to do so, which is sort of one of the really good litmus tests for figuring out, okay, have I changed something in my brain? The point being that we are all more vulnerable to the problem of addiction than in previous generations. And I really think that this, that the problem of addiction is really going to be our uh, many centuries modern plague. So people need to be very aware that the world around them is putting increasing pressures on them that has a, a higher propensity or likelihood that they may become addicted. So they've got to watch out for that. Yes. Addiction is 
is it the moment that it's doing harm or do, does it need to do harm for it to be an addiction or does it need that the harm piece needs to be part of it for it to be called an addiction or, or how is that defined? It does need to be doing harm for it to meet like threshold criteria of psychopathology that we call addiction or a substance use disorder or whatever the terminology is that people um, are using. But the harm can also often be subtle. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. I have lots of folks come in who are addicted to cannabis um, who believe they are self-medicating their anxiety and depression with the cannabis because initially it, it works really it well. Works, yeah, yeah. But over time, as the brain adapts and starts to downregulate endogenous cannabinoid production, because we make our own cannabis in our brain, endogenous opioids, endogenous dopamine, what ha ends up happening is we end up in this dopamine deficit state where essentially the cannabis use, like all other uh, reinforcing substances and behavior is creating or driving the addiction, but we have no awareness that that's happening. So it's a very subtle uh, progression, right? Where like I'm using this drug to treat my anxiety and I still have the subjective experience that it's helping because every time I use it, unless it's really turned on me, which happens, uh, it helps my anxiety. But really what, what it's doing is it's making anxiety worse over time. So that's a very kind of insidious consequence that develops slowly that's very very difficult to appreciate uh, for the user him or herself um, as opposed to like we think about consequences as like oh I ended up homeless sleeping under yeah. a bench or I ended up in jail or my spouse left me or my kids won't talk to me I mean those are more uh, you know tangible consequences in terms of trying to protect yourself from uh, addiction is is that possible um, and how do you go about it? What are the things that can help? Well, I think it's very difficult, but we we must endeavor to do that. And I think the first thing that can help is just recognizing the ways in which so much of our lives, as I said, have become drugified in some way, made more reinforcing. These are the things that make something addictive in the world today, simple access, right? The more access we have to a drug, the more likely we are to use it, more likely we are to get addicted, but also quantity, quantity and frequency matter, how much we use, how often, how potent it is. Drugs are incredibly potent today. Traditional drugs are incredibly potent. Digital drugs are extremely potent. And then you have, did I mention uh, novelty, right? How if you take a drug to over overcome tolerance, you can make it a little bit different, right? And of course the internet is, phenomenal at that, especially with these AI algorithms that learn us and then push notification, uh, something that's similar, but a little bit different, engaging that treasure hunting function in our brains, like, oh, I'm going to keep looking for that next best thing. So, uh, you know, access, quantity, potency, and novelty. So if you think about those four things, those are the places where we can try to intervene to prevent us getting to this point of uh, compulsive overconsumption or addiction. Access. We absolutely need to, with intention and uh, in advance, create both physical and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice to limit access. I call this self-binding strategies. Mm. Um, so if potato chips is our drug, we need to not have potato chips in the house. If it's a particular video game, we probably need to not have that on the same laptop that we're using for our work or our schoolwork. Uh, if it's pornography, um, you know, again, we need to find some measure of accountability. Maybe it's um, somebody monitoring our credit card and what we're spending it on. So access is key. Um, quantity is key. If, we're, if we decide that we're going to use this particular intoxicant, we have to mind uh, 
uh, how often and how much, because daily use is a, uh, is a harbinger of addictive use and large quantities are, are a harbinger because again, we're flooding the brain. So if we use our intoxicant in modest quantities with days in between, uh, we're less likely to progress to this point where we're in addicted brain. So we talked about access. We talked about quantity. Um, potency is really, you know, really, really important. When you look at cannabis, for example, the THC or the addictive ingredient in cannabis in the 1960s was about 10%. Now it's about 90% with some formulations. Really? Oh, yes, it's absolutely. So cannabis has has turned into a bona fide hard drug. We are seeing so many Stanford students who are incredibly addicted to cannabis, smoking by themselves in their room, you know, all day long. And it's it's tragic. And they don't even know how they got there and they can't stop. Um, so, you know, uh, if you're going to use pot, try to find a low potency version, right? Try mm. not to smoke it, uh, but people don't like that because of the delayed onset or whatever, whatever, it, you know, if it's, uh, if it's romance novels, like for me, you know, uh, I probably need to be read like, um, what they call spiritual romance novels where the whole buildup and climax is when they actually, you know, hug or something like that. Right. <laughs> or, you know, what I, I, I was, I, for a while I was like trying to replace my, my drug of choice with like, Amish romance novels, you know, <laughs> it's hard because like it doesn't quite do the same thing, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and then you've got novelty, right? So this is constant searching for something like that. But, uh, and so this is where, again, my recommendation for dopamine fasting or a period of abstinence um, comes into kind to reset these reward pathways so that more modest rewards are again enjoyable. So those are some of the things to think about. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I mean, that, that there's hope. Um, so, oh, if, yeah. I mean, you know oh, yeah. what I mean? Like, cause, yes. Cause oh, there, yeah. there's a dark place that people get into when they're in the middle of this. And, and part of that dark place is shame. Oh, for sure. So shame is really interesting when we think about these behaviors because it's, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, sh the shame and the hiding around our compulsive behaviors, the double life, the lying uh, that contributes to the shame can perpetuate these behaviors as we use, you know, use our, as our drug becomes, I, I use drug broadly to encompass behaviors and substances that we ingest, uh, you know, become the way that we kind of soothe ourselves and, and soothe our own shame. But on the other hand, I would not want to get get rid of shame completely because shame is also the can be a major motivator for stopping these behaviors, which over time uh, tend to deviate more and more from our values and our goals um, and our moral compass. And if we didn't have a moral compass, we wouldn't experience shame about the behavior. So you want to have some degree of shame, but it has to be what I call pro-social shame, not destructive shame. And that very much then depends on our community and whether or not we are in a community where we can be truthful about our behaviors and still be embraced and loved and guided in a better direction rather than being shunned or rejected or further shame. And, so and, that, and that's where you talk about the radical honesty as yeah. a really important aspect of overcoming this. Yeah, I love radical honesty because it's an antidote to the double life of addiction where people are on the one hand presenting themselves publicly in one way, but in, on the other hand, doing engaging in these behaviors secretly, which contribute to their shame and also are addictive. 
And so one of the things I prescribe to my patients is radical honesty. Try to go through a single day or a single week or a single month without um, lying to anybody about anything. And it turns out it's really hard to do. The average adult tells one to two lies per day. Usually these are small lies um, that kind of manipulate others' impressions to put ourselves in, a, in, in the best light. Um, you know, and they, we don't even notice them because they're small things like why we were late for a meeting. Uh, but what I prescribe is like, no, you know, try hard not to lie about anything. And in not lying about the small things, we're then also hopefully not lying about the big things. Uh, we're not lying about anything. And then we, we really have a great desire and need to be seen for who we really are. And of course, to be uh, loved and embraced for who we are. We're terribly afraid that when people uh, see the things that the selfish mistakes we've made, the, the lies we've told, et cetera, that um, people will really be repulsed by us. It's kind of an, like an innate fear that we have. But in fact, very often the opposite ha happens, that people see uh, see in us, you know, their own brokenness and their own humanity. And there's a feeling of kind of communal intimacy that can happen. Um, and, and that's really great. I mean, I work with a lot of families and, you know, what I say to patients is, you know, your addiction is not the main thing that's destroying your relationships. It's the lying about the addiction. And if you can stop the lying, um, that will put you on the path also to be able to be able to stop the behavior. Because when we're doing a behavior that we're ashamed about, but we know we're going to have to then tell somebody about it and suffer whatever those consequences are, um, we're, we're more likely to think twice. Um, I don't, and, and, and technically, is it a disease? Addiction? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we do think that addiction is a disease. Why do we think that? A couple different reasons. There are now um, well-documented brain changes that occur when people repeatedly and compulsively engage in uh, the use of addictive drugs and addictive behaviors. And the changes that occur, as I talked about, are how we slowly drive ourselves into this uh, dopamine deficit state as a way to compensate for the overstimulation of our dopamine reward pathway. And this dopamine deficit state is akin to a clinical depression. And you can see it on functional imaging studies in humans. You can see it in um, um, mice and rats. So it's a, it's a really nicely documented brain change. Uh, which, you know, is part and parcel of the psychopathology, which is also what makes it very difficult to stop using our drug of choice. But the other reason that it's a disease is because if you look at how people respond to treatment when we medicalize addiction, what you find is that people get better uh, with treatment of a medical condition on par with their recovery rates from other chronic relapsing and remitting disorders like depression, like mm. asthma, like obesity, like certain types of heart disease. So any chronic relapsing and remitting disorder with a behavioral component, of which we have many, um, will respond, uh, addiction responds very similarly when you treat it like a disease within the healthcare system. So to me, that's also very um, compelling evidence. But but there's something, in a lot of cases, there's something else behind it, isn't there? And And your job, obviously, as a therapist is to try and uh, scratch the surface and get below that and find out what's really uh, going on in, oh, in a lot I'm, of cases. I'm yeah. so glad you said that because, in fact, one of my main messages is that that is a myth. This oh. idea, yes, 
Okay. Yes. And so I'm really glad you said that because I, I really want to get out there that there's this idea of, oh, if I can only discover what's driving my addiction, I will no longer be addicted. And the truth is that in many cases, what's driving addiction is that the substances and behaviors are addictive and that our brains are wired, again, to consume as much of a pleasurable substance or behavior as they can when they can get it. And you don't necessarily need to have some kind of underlying neuroses or trauma or difficult situation um, that's behind that. Now, um, is that often the case that, that there's some other phenomenon that's that initiated or contributed to? Absolutely. But in the early stages, what, what, what the problem that I see happening in mental health care is that both therapists and psychiatrists uh, and patients and clients are spending a lot of wasted time sitting around trying to figure out what's driving the addiction instead of just intervening behaviorally to stop the behavior so that the brain can heal from its chronic exposure. And then after that, once they're in early recovery and they've got, you know, healthier levels of dopamine and they can, you know, reaccess their prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, the part of our brain that we can use to evaluate yeah. future consequences, then you can start getting into, okay, well, what are the other, what are the contributors? What made, what made you vulnerable? That's really interesting. And out of interest, do you ever truly recover as uh, from an addiction or is it always something that's going to be there in the background that you have to keep an eye on and you have to watch for and it could raise its ugly head again uh, or, or is it a case that you can kind of go I'm clear I'm uh, like cancer or something like that it's 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 gone well I think cancer is a great analogy because some people get cancer and they treat it and they're good you know they don't have another case of cancer other people get cancer and they live with cancer for the rest of their lives and they need lifetime treatment and and we see that with addiction too you know some people who um, meet criteria for addiction you know have a course of treatment or otherwise get into recovery um, and then after a you know a, a period of time go back to using their substance in moderation and with a lot of self-binding strategies and effort typically and are able to um, use in moderation and don't ever um, get caught in that vortex of addiction. But but there are obviously people with severe addiction who, even after long periods of abstinence, a single exposure, not just to their drug, drug of choice, but to any intoxicant, will find themselves immediately relapsing in, in the depth of their... So we, we do believe that, you know, uh, chronic heavy exposure to addictive substances and behaviors permanently changes the brain, but people are different in terms of how that manifests and what the ultimate consequences are. And there are, uh, there is a minority of people who can, it turns out, return to using that substance in moderation with a lot of effort and accountability. Um, but it's, it's, again, I like to emphasize it's a small-ish minority. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, addiction is, addiction is a spectrum disorder, mild, moderate, severe. And then you've got your pre-addiction state, which I would say most of us are in, mm -hmm. in some form or another at this point, where we're kind of not, you know, really, it's not like having huge consequences of, in our lives, but maybe manifesting in the terms of like, wow, spent a lot more time, you know, watching that YouTube video than I really wanted to. And um, feeling a little bit, you know, irritable or anxious or depressed because I, uh, you know, drank too much wine mm. and more than I mm. said I might, meaning to cut back. So these kind of pre-addiction, addictive states, I think, are more and more pervasive. And the one I find really scary is um, I've got kids from 14 to 21 and I'm trying to um, chat to them about technology and social media right. and the amount of time they spend on that. 
And I do too, by the way. Um, I I wanted to find out what TikTok was all about, and I went on TikTok to find out, <laughs> and I became completely addicted to TikTok. Right, three I days was later, suddenly right. going, where did that time go? Yeah, right, yeah. And I actually had to delete the app, right? Yes, um, right. And um, but but for them, you know, they have radically different ideas as to when it's a problem. And it's like, well, if I spend, you know, six hours uh, on a Saturday, that's that's okay because okay. I don't watch telly anymore because we don't do that young people right. yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's it's difficult to know um so where does good parenting come in here and and how do you kind of support apart from just giving them your book <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well I, i'm sure you're a good parent and we're all you know we all parents are struggling with this um you know i i think the the, the negative effects of social media and digital drugs more broadly are are for most of us, subtle and insidious and cumulative. Um, and they really, you know, excessive consumption really, we, we pay an enormous price for that. But we're only just now beginning to see that. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, for young people and for parents, understanding that these digital digital media really is addictive um, mm -hmm. and what it does to our brain and how potent it actually is talking about it openly, talking about the struggles, parents talking about their own struggles, trying to model for their children, yeah. uh, the kinds of like, you know, sharing with your children that you had to delete, you know, the TikTok app because it sucked you in. That's yeah. great modeling. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, we're all vulnerable to this problem. Let's come together and figure out how we can solve it together. Um, making sure that people appreciate that this virtual space has many gifts, but that there's this definite dark side. And one of the really important, you know, subtle dark sides is that we're depleting our in-person experience of vitality because we're not spending the time there, right? So we're losing, we have enhanced collectivity in the virtual world, but not maybe at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, so trying to bring that back and say, okay, you know, we have this robust online world, but let's remember uh, that we there are unique things we get from being together in person that are going to be um, lost if we don't intentionally make the investment to keep that vigorous and to invest in you know the, the, these 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 human live interactions. So I mean, again, developing collectively a kind of digital etiquette. Nobody, no one person has the answer. There is yeah. no data on how much is. Too much, the right amount, yeah. Yeah, to spend on your device. But I, I can tell you, I, I do strongly believe this is a drug. We, it, we're we like moths to flame. Yeah. And we need to temper it. And we need to temper not just what we're doing online, but actually being on the device itself. More and more, in, in the beginning, I was talking a lot about delete this app, delete that app. Now I'm actually telling people, actually put the device down. Take yeah. your phone off of your person, power it down, put it over there and go out of your house without the device. You know, so just creating some distance, trying to find, you know, what is that healthy relationship with the technology? What is the middle way? And, you know, even young people who are, you know, we think of as like on 24 seven, you've got some, you know, Luddite movements among teenagers who are coming together and collectively here in California, actually putting their devices down and trying to like make it through the day, like the blind leading the blind without, you know, that hasn't that together. hasn't reached Ireland that trend, <laughs> right? But it will, it will, because these yeah. kids, these kids will, these kids are smart, and yeah. they will, they have already begun to figure out, like, wow, I do not want to spend my life on TikTok, 
you know? Um, so how can I begin to think about a different way? Uh, I mean, the technology companies are just brilliant at what they do because they then have, you know, if you go for a walk, sure. Oh, well, you have to bring your phone because it's tracking I, your steps or whatever. I mean, like it's and and the likes and we're all susceptible to loving our likes. You know, it uh, makes us feel good. Just one of the things, obviously, we're um, trying to do as an organization is make work healthy. Right. And um, one of the things I'd love you to just speak into is um, the role that organizations maybe play in this. I mean, if you're leading an organization of, I don't know, a thousand, ten thousand people or whatever, um, there's a fair chance that there's a, a percentage of those people who are struggling in some way with an addiction. Is there, number one, a duty of care um, that an organization might have? And even whether there is or isn't, um, it would be the right thing to try and support people in in that uh, position that they find themselves in. And what ways can an organization actually do that? OK, so a couple of things. First of all, I do think there is potentially a duty of care to help um, workers who are struggling with addiction and that it also it makes good common sense practice for companies because people will be happier people and better workers if they're not you know, struggling with addiction. And there are some good models of, of how companies have done this by actually incentivizing recovery. So, for example, some models of uh, smoking cessation programs primarily focused on cigarettes that will then, if people are able to quit smoking, allow them to reduce their copay for health insurance. So things like that where you incentivize recovery and, and also very importantly, conceptualize addiction as a disease so that if people are struggling with addiction, you know, within reason, um, supporting them as you would support them with any other type of um, illness, uh, you know, access to care, supporting that care, um, but recognizing that it's an illness with this huge behavioral component. So also wanting to incentivize behavior change and wanting to have reasonable consequences uh, for um, a job poorly done yeah. uh, as a result of uh, so that you know that gets difficult, but 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 in my experience, consequences uh, are one of the main drivers of people getting into recovery uh, from their addiction, uh, and including work consequences. So you know, it's not like a free for all, like oh, you know, they're sick, they can do you know, not show up to work, not do that. No, there have to be real consequences. But again, we can have consequences while also having compassion and using the disease model to drive that. But let's also talk about the drugification of work itself, because that's also mm -hmm. something that has happened where now we've you know, made work 24-7 access, so there's mm -hmm. no break from work. Um, we now give people graphic rep representations of their quote-unquote productivity. We incentivize that productivity with monetary bonuses, with comparisons to others, all of the other ways that you know, people get addicted to work. So really trying to, to also um, kind of walk that line between wanting to have productive employees, but recognizing that in the long haul, getting your employees to be addicted to work is probably not going to make them, um, you know, fully thriving humans. That you really want to create a culture in which people work hard when they're working, help them focus and consolidate their work to discrete times, but then otherwise encourage them to take a break from work. Mm -hmm. Because again, quantity and frequency matter. And if we're constantly working, we are liable to get addicted to work and also forget about the other aspects of ourselves, lose the ability to enjoy other aspects of ourselves, including things like family, um, sports, hobbies. So again, looking for kind of that middle line. And I'm interested in your view on uh, people who potentially have, um, you know, addictions going on who are now working from at home, because at least 
if you if you're busy and you're going to a workplace um there's this you know um a social aspect to it that's really really important and there's a sort of norms um and uh, so access as you mentioned and opportunity and environment are are pretty important um and there's things going on in your home that maybe um you wouldn't be able to do in a workplace what's what's your view well, I think for white collar jobs, we're moving toward the three day work week. Work week, at least that's truer and truer here in Silicon Valley, a kind of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday work week. And otherwise, people are wanting the flexibility and family time of being at home. And I think overall, my sense is uh, this is a good trend because um, it means people are spending less time commuting, more time pursuing family, wellness, other hobbies. Um, but still getting that in-person experience that I think really is important to, uh, you know, work being both giving us a sense of meaning um, and a sense of uh, connection and also doing better work. Um, again, you know, these, these are white collar jobs where people have the ability sure. and the privilege of course, to do that. There are you know, a lot of people in service jobs, et cetera, who don't have that option. Yeah. Um, so, so I think in general, you know, that's good as long as people... Uh, you know, this kind of sort of, um, you know, again, especially combating workaholism, this, this can be a really good thing. Um, on the other hand, you know, what it does create uh, is that many people can just roll out of bed and uh, sort of roll to the screen and don't actually have to, like, get themselves together to be presentable. And so for people who are struggling with latent addictions, this has certainly accelerated things like alcohol addiction, cannabis addiction, other addictions in some cases where that decreased structure um, of having to, like, show up five mm. days a week has made them more vulnerable to the problems. And we see that we see that all the time here in our clinic now. Um, so it's it's funny. It's I think it's again depending upon the person and their circumstance. Uh, more flexibility in at home work can be a good thing or a bad thing. And one, one final question about work um, power. Um, uh, is there a dopamine connection with power, and then the the good and the bad that can come from that in a in a workplace? Oh yeah. So this is uh, there's been quite a bit of work on this. For example, looking at people in England who work for the government and where they are on the bureaucracy determining like health outcomes and people lower in health outcomes having worse, uh, lower in the bureaucracy and the hierarchy having worse health outcomes. One of the things that I find fascinating about, you know, in big tech uh, here in the Valley is that um, among the most ardent advocates for return to work are actually tech bosses, so CEOs, who wanted, you know, they like work, right? Like they go in and they're all their minions and people bowing down to them. And unlike their spouses and their teenage kids, right? You know, they've got, and now now they go to the office and like, there's no there there and they're really upset. And they're like, but all the other people, you know, who are sort of lower down, they're like, no, no, thanks. I don't really want to go back to work. So for sure, you know, this kind of whole, you know, being higher in the hierarchy uh, makes, you know, obviously makes work for many uh, more appealing and people like you know not to call out elon musk but i've just seen so many interviews with him now he's like you know i i sleep in the factory i sleep under my desk you know i'm there 20 i want people to see that i'm sleeping there it's like well good for you you're the boss you can choose to you know where you sleep the other people are just doing the work like they don't get that privilege and if they were sleeping in the factory you probably wouldn't notice them so you know this kind of like myopic perspective of like CEOs who just don't even really even yeah. realize. Yeah.
It's interesting, you know, um, one of the quotes just uh, in your book, you say, I urge you, as in people who are reading it, to immerse yourself fully in the life you've been given, to stop running from what you're trying to escape and instead stop and face it. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of people are just running and they're trying to distract the hell out of themselves from the life that they're just uncomfortable with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I know that that's true for me, you know, um, so uh, and it's true for many of my patients. And, and I think it's just a, a true for all of us. But I, I do think that one of the secrets, um, you know, to life is to realize, oh, wow, like I cannot outrun this pain. I mean, and in doing so, I'm I'm creating more pain for myself and others. I might as well just stop and embrace it. And when we do that and we immerse ourselves in whatever it is that we've been given, you know, we paradoxically get some relief from our suffering and also can discover the wonder of the lives that we've been given. Sort of a corollary to this is, you know, here at Stanford, I see a lot of anxious, upwardly mobile students who all are looking for their passion. You know, what is my, what's my calling? What's my passion? And in that process, they're no longer paying attention to the world around them right now and all the things that they could be doing and getting done and contributing. Or, you know, even people in their everyday jobs, oh, I would be so much happier if I had, you know, a different job or I were, you know, it's like, well, wait, wait a minute, let's stop and let's look at this job that you have. And and is there a way that you can turn this experience into something positive um, for, for you and for others? So kind of trying to fight against this sort of FOMO, you know, this fear of yeah. missing out, which I think is a, a huge contributor to our feelings of anxiety in general, this idea, and which is very much exacerbated by the virtual reality world that we're all connected to, that like, oh, I really should be somewhere else with other people doing something out somewhere, you know, doing something else instead of sort of disconnecting from this illusion and coming back down to where we are and say, well, wait a minute, I'm here now and this is what I've got. So what, yeah. how can I make the best of it? And, and part of that is just paying attention, paying attention. Just interested, uh, you know, finally, uh, just the whole idea of our own mortality, obviously, is something that we're trying to constantly um, distract ourselves from. Um, yeah. And uh, how big a part do you think religion and maybe uh, I, I don't know what it's like uh, in the States at the moment, but across Europe, sometimes, you know, religious um, observance is, is dropping and belief in God maybe is dropping. I, I, I do, you, do you feel that that's also contributing to kind of this hopeless society that we're in? Oh. Absolutely. I do think that the secularization of especially uh, wealthy Western nations, but you know, also um, places like China has, has really contributed to a lot of psychological suffering. And I have all kinds of ideas on that that we probably don't have time to get into, but I do think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, um, I mean, as I said at the start, thank you so much for writing this book. It's oh, brilliantly written and it's, you. You, you know, I mean, like you, you've you gone out on a limb in terms of talking about your own addictions, which I mean, that's very humble of you. And uh, and and thank you so much for doing it. I hope the book is um, read by many, many people. And I, as I said, I hope it's part of the um, educational uh, curriculum at the at the appropriate age, obviously. Um, and and there's a little story you talk about um, from uh, one of the uh, films about lighting lights along the way. And, oh, yeah. Uh, just if you'd like to finish on that one, because I think it does give hope to people uh, about healthy behaviours. Yeah. Slowly but surely. 
Right. So this idea, uh, this is from like a Harry Potter movie movie where I think Dumbledore, I think, is wandering down a dark alley, lighting the lampposts as he goes, and then at some point stops and turns around and sees the whole alley illuminated. And I think recovery is a lot like that. We we have to just focus on today. What can I do today, right now, uh, to help myself, to help somebody else, to take the next right step, to do the next right thing? And it doesn't feel like very much in the moment, but the cumulative effect of doing that day after day, we have suddenly, you know, a string of good days, which is a string of good weeks, which is a string of good months, and and we have a life that we can feel good about. You know something, um, uh, the book is full of such fantastic stories. I didn't get to half of it. Um, and I think, you know, based on what you were saying, I, I need to put a little more work on my pain side by maybe <laughs> going and taking a cold shower. Yeah. <laughs> to, uh, there's a lot of people actually in my hometown go uh, sea swimming. So they, they kind of do that little bit of pain yeah. uh, so that there's a, a pleasure that comes from that. So we shouldn't That's underestimate uh, the power in pain uh, to mitigate uh, yep. life. We are, we're, we, that's right. We're wired for pain. Yeah. We're wired yeah, for that. Yeah. yeah. But listen, um, that's pain. But this has been an absolute pleasure. So oh, thank you too. so much for your time. And um, I, I, I'll recommend everybody to buy this book. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. It's been my pleasure. Take good thank care. You. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Some wonderful, inspiring thoughts from Dr. Anna Lamke and the book is a fantastic read with so much more information than we could possibly put into a 60 minute podcast so do go out and buy that and use it and please let me know any feedback you have on any of the podcasts in this series you can follow me and message me on LinkedIn for myself John Ryan thanks for listening and until next time work healthy